Have you ever read the play A Midsummer Night's Dream? Um, random question. I think it's by Shakespeare, right? I think I remember a character named Puck. Good memory. Yeah, I think we read that back in high school. But what on earth does that have to do with environmental chemicals? Okay, so one of the clever things that Shakespeare did when he wrote A Midsummer Night's Dream is that he created a play within the play. Oh, right. I think I remember that. I remember my English teacher explaining that Shakespeare liked to do that because it was his way to repeat many of the points he was trying to make. It was a way to have the themes echo across multiple stories. Right, and now it's our turn to do something similar. Because on today's episode of A Daily Dose, you're going to get a podcast within a podcast. Hi, I'm Jody, And I'm Jillian. And today we're turning over the podcast to our high school counterparts. These students interviewed five environmental activists, many of whom focus on issues related to breast cancer and other diseases affecting human populations. Women today have a one in eight risk of developing breast cancer in their lifetime. This is a huge increase from the risk that was seen just two generations earlier, leading both advocates and scientists to wonder how the environment is involved with this complicated disease. As we've seen with other hormone-related diseases, an increase in incidence over a short period of time is one kind of hint that the environmental factors might be involved. And certainly, there are other lifestyle factors that are known to influence breast cancer risk, such as obesity, consumption of alcohol and smoking. But in the past few decades, advocates have started to focus on environmental factors that can contribute to diseases, including industrial pollution and exposures to chemicals from everyday life. Without further ado, let's hear from these high school podcasters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast within a podcast. I'm Alexander Vosis. I'm Isabel Wong. And I'm Amanda Shi. Today, we'll be talking about the role advocates can play with regards to environmental pollutants and the challenges that advocates face. Throughout this episode, we'll be telling you the story of the Long Island Breast Cancer Study Project, or the LIBCSP. Have either of you ever heard of it? No. Well, in the early 1990s, there was an alarming trend in breast cancer incidence among women on Long Island. There is a higher rate of breast cancer on Long Island than elsewhere in the country. A study was conducted to get to the bottom of the issue, and that's where our story begins. Karen Miller, director of the Huntington Breast Cancer Action Coalition, told us about the story of the LIBCSP. So um, this was the first of its kind to look at environmental triggers to disease and not just, um, you know, the cure factor. And we wanted to look beyond smoking and exercise. So there was a geographic information um, system component that would do mapping to see why on Long Island um, from Queens to 
uh, Montauk, uh, why there was high incidence of breast cancer. Um, we studied the um, uh, dust in people's homes. We took samples of their soil. They filled out a very elaborate questionnaire looking at their history. What we learned in that project, while it uh, ha has a lot of data that the principal investigator is still using uh, and other uh, researchers are looking into it, um, is that women cannot totally recall their exposures, that studies have to be conducted in real time, and that would be extremely challenging. But the good news is that the Long Island Breast Cancer Study Project got us a leg up and breast cancer research um, became um, resourced uh, extraordinarily, you know, it, it became um, uh, resourced. The federal government put more money into it. The LIBCSP is a scientific study, but it never could have happened without advocates. Most people think of science as only involving scientists, but that doesn't seem to be the case here. Did you know that during the study, advocates went door to door asking families about their breast cancer history to gather data? No, I didn't. But wow, that's some dedication right there. Advocates really are the bridge between scientists and the public. We talked to Laura Weinberg, president of the Great Neck Breast Cancer Coalition, who expressed the importance of a passionate public that feels galvanized to fight for their health. And I think that the most, one of the most important things is public outcry that people writing letters to their legislators saying, this is what I've learned about, about this specific chemical, that this is what it's doing. Whoa, communicating with the public really is an essential part of advocacy. Yeah, it's an advocate's job to make the public aware of the issues that affect them and to get them to fight for change. Unfortunately, one major challenge they face is how companies can sow doubt in the public. Charlotte Brody, Vice President of Health Initiatives at the Blue-Green Alliance, spoke to us about the various ways in which companies can sow doubt. The, the biggest way is, is the way the American chemical industry um, seeds doubt, you know, and, and they take all of their playbooks from uh, the tobacco industry, right? That, that uh, uh, science is always unsure, right? Science is always developing. Um, uh, good scientists are always doubting their findings and figuring out uh, how to do things better. And uh, while um, a, a good teacher of science is always teaching the importance of maybe yes, maybe no, it, it, I, I think we can still be respectful of the intellect of the American people and say, m most Americans don't um, think doubt is a necessary part of the way we think of our work, right? That, that, that doubt seems like weakness. And, um, and uh, all good science has doubt, but, but it's been manipulated really um, well and, and really nefariously by the American chemical industry to, to uh, deny important scientific advancements. 
Charlotte also told us about how she perceives advocates' role in fighting this doubt by putting money into research and making scientists into heroes. Making sure that there's non-corporate money to fund research, you know, un enough to balance the corporate research that's done. And we, if you look at people like um, the, the, the academics who have been um, targeted, Tyrone Hayes is, is usually, um, has, has the most visible stories, if you Google Tyrone Hayes, that, that we need to do a better job as a community of making good scientists into the heroes they are and um, defending them when they are attacked. And to, and to do it enough that a young scientist who's trying to decide um, whether to do something edgy or whether to do something safe can feel like they can do something edgy and still um, get tenure, feed their families, uh, you know, all the things that people think are practical. Another important part of the LIBCSP was reaching people in power. The advocates involved in this study pressed the government at both the state and federal level for funds for research into environmental factors that could increase the risk of breast cancer. It can take real tenacity to reach those in power. Sometimes I feel like they aren't really listening at all. I totally get what you're saying, and reaching those in power is important. But we have to keep in mind that working with them is just as important as holding them accountable. That is how we can make lasting change. Karen Wang, the director of the Collaborative on Health and the Environment and founder and editor-in-chief of the environmental wellness website Because Health, told us how we have to understand that companies have to meet certain expectations for their products in order to sell them, and that sometimes these expectations can only be met through the use of chemicals. She stresses transparency from companies, but also understanding from consumers. I also see something else, which I think is sometimes also driven by consumers. Um, I also see the, um, well, you know, consumers, you know, they want to have a product that performs a certain way, you know, and so in order for this, let's say, outdoor blanket to be water repellent, so that you can sit on a wet grass for you to be able to spill wine on it, not have to wash it, all of these things. Well, if people want this performance, we're going to have to um, coat it in uh, some sort of PFAS chemical. Well, I think it's interesting to, to like put that on the consumer when in the first place, you know, they've created these expectations for these products um, that have these magical properties and consumers don't know the full extent of how these, um, you know, how these outdoor blankets get these magical properties, you know? So I think it's a little bit of an issue where they, they put the, the, you know, it's like, well, consumers want this high performance product. And it's like, well, you didn't really, you know, you know, maybe you didn't knowingly, um, you know, you know, impact people's health with these chemicals. But now that you know about it, you know, let's be more transparent with the consumer um, and let them know that actually in order to get these magical properties, we are using this chemical that is 
being linked with these other health effects, you know? So maybe, you know, we could sell a blanket without these, you know, without these chemicals, for example. Anna Symington, a breast cancer survivor and advocate working with Rays of Hope in Springfield, Massachusetts, also had something to add regarding this, commenting on the fact that advocates shouldn't look at companies as the all evil. From experience, what I can say is that companies will sit across the table and talk to members of the community. If the community is showing they will listen and when advocates are speaking, it's not an attack mode. Um, and again, I'm taking this from experience of sitting across the tables with some pretty major companies that you have a law that's there. And as long as they're staying within the law, anything they do above and beyond that is considered extra, if you will. I see now there is real value in working with those in power. Some advocates have successfully lobbied for regulation and legislation to protect the public's health. For example, Laura Weinberg of Great Neck Breast Cancer Coalition and Kara Miller of Huntington Breast Cancer Action Coalition on Long Island worked with New York's governor to pass multiple laws, including one requiring brands to list the chemicals in child's products and another banning hydrofracking, also known as fracking in New York State. Here's what Laura Weinberg had to say about their actions. So I worked with the New York State Breast Cancer Network, which is no longer sadly in existence. And there were about a dozen of us from different parts of New York State, all over New York State. And I worked very hard with Karen Miller to get the word out. We actually sat in um, Governor Cuomo's office with his head, his head um, uh, environmental person, and she was on one side and I was on the other side of him. And we said, this is why you need to ban fracking. And we went over, we said, there's like between 600 and 700 chemicals that get, that get plowed into the, into, into the groundwater. We were dancing in the street when Governor Cuomo banned fracking. And that was shortly after we had the meeting with his um, head environmental person. I guess working with legislators, governors, and other elected officials can yield results that help everyone. Yeah, but Kara Miller is not yet satisfied with the steps that have been taken. She points out that there's still more work to be done. I'm not uh, happy uh, at this moment seeing that in 2021, uh, we're not seeing a ban on those chemicals in fracking, you know, at a federal level. So that then brings us to um, working with many members, many, many of the advocate community to keep delivering the message that um, fracking with toxic chemicals ought have will have play havoc on our lives and lives for future generations. It's kind of amazing that this huge study was done on Long Island to look at connections between the environment and breast cancer. And yet many people who live there don't even know about the study. 
This really demonstrates one of the themes that we have heard from the advocates we met. Many are frustrated that their information doesn't spread as far and as wide as they would hope. That's really sad. Who isn't their message reaching? One significant group that is often overlooked is young people. Laura Weinberg and Karen Miller each run students and scientists research programs through their breast cancer coalitions, which allow young people like us to learn about harmful environmental toxins. However, most young people are unaware of the dangers that environmental pollutants pose. Karen Wang from Because Health is trying to emphasize prevention over treatment and is also trying to reach young people. You know, we need to focus on prevention and not just treatment. You know, I think there is, in general, as you know, a lot of talk about treatment and finding um, cures. And, and I think that we should work on that. But at simultaneously, we should be working on, you know, figuring out, um, you know, why, you know, people are getting cancers in the first place and what can be done to prevent that. What I think is, you know, difficult about breast cancer is, is that, you know, it's an issue that um, I think many people don't even think about until they're in their 40s or 50s. Um, they think about it as this far off thing or someone, something that happens to their parents or to older people. And, you know, in many cases, if you're thinking about prevention, you know, thinking about it at that stage in life is, you know, a little too late. Um, we need to be thinking about prevention throughout the life. She also told us about some steps that young people can take to prevent cancer. Um, so I'd say some of the biggest ones are um, think about um, food and water, you know, first. Um, obviously, we're eating and drinking multiple times a day. Um, and so that is a big source of exposure. You know, I like to emphasize, you know, this, um, uh, many times I like to emphasize things that are free that people can do. So one of the ones is wash your hands before you eat or snack. Um, many times around our home or in office spaces, you know, you pick up chemicals on your, your hands and they're quite sticky. And then when you, you know, eat a sandwich, it gets on the sandwich and then you eat it. Um, so washing your hands can be a simple thing, which is also a great thing to do during a pandemic. Um, uh, other things, um, that I like to emphasize, um, this is more about indoor air quality, but like if you're cooking, open a window or turn on the hood, um, because, you know, just the act of turning on the, you know, the stove, um, releases VOCs into the, the air. Um, another one I like to emphasize is to take your shoes off before you come home. You know, we track a lot of, um, pollutants, um, lead, pesticide residues, other things into the home through the bottom of our shoes. Um, so you can take your shoes off at the door and have a pair of indoor shoes or indoor slippers. So those are all like, that's an example of three free things that you can do that have, um, that will have an impact on your health. Those are all really good points. But one thing I've been wondering about is the people making these products. I know we focus a lot on what consumers can avoid. But what about the people manufacturing those products who are exposed to harmful chemicals through their work? Advocates and legislators often overlook workers and mainly focus on consumers. 
Charlotte Brody from Blue Green Alliance told us a little more about how outdated the laws protecting workers are. The Occupational Safety and Health Act is 50 years old now, and um, the chemical part of the of OSHA um, it is it's really 50 years out of date. It it um, yeah, OSHA's done a really good job in teaching people about you know ladder safety and um, uh, harnessing if you're going to climb up uh, a wind turbine to fix it and um, uh, lots of the ways that people were uh, getting sick or, or lots of the ways that, that people were getting hurt really hasn't kept up to date. And there's, you know, depending on which version you read, there's 40,000 chemicals, there's 85,000 chemicals. OSHA has regulations for less than 40 of them. And those regulations are um, set limits that like what we talked about earlier are really men on the idea of like only really high exposures matter. Um, and and uh, it's one chemical at a time, not mixtures and all of the things that we know are wrong with the old way of, of regulating chemicals. But one of the things that is um, happening right now and is taking a good bit of my time right now is that the um, in the, 2016 updates to the Toxic Substances Control Act, TOSCA, um, that that uh, the reform of that law um, has Senator Lautenberg's name on it, uh, the, your, your neighbor in New Jersey or your former neighbor in New Jersey. And um, the, the um, TOSCA now uh, has a provision that says, if a chemical isn't safe for workers, it's not safe. Since the term workers encompasses a wide range of people, Charlotte Brody has also worked to bring different groups together in a coalition. She said coalitions have to be diverse and encompass a wide range of views to reach everyone. Bernice Reagan uh, once said, um, if you like everybody in the room, your coalition isn't big enough, right? That, 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 um, coalitions aren't meant to be clubs. They're not to be friendship circles. They're not supposed to be people who all believe the same thing and, you know, drink the same kind of wine and um, like the same movies. It, it, a, a, a good coalition um, is much broader than that. And it's, it's diversity is what makes gives it its power when it actually agrees on something. It's really remarkable that advocates from different backgrounds can work together towards the same goal. I hope that today we broadened your perception of what role advocates can play in public health promotion. Karen Miller from the Huntington Coalition talked about why the LIBCSP is so important three decades later. So we were, you know, that was our learning curve. Um, uh, we put together, uh, it was monthly meetings where um, the uh, National Cancer Institute, as well as the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, convened with advocates, researchers were invited. So we were learning, um, beginning to learn how to communicate to each other. One of the um, flaws at the beginning 
was you need to build a trusted relationship in order to provide information to the advocacy community in real time. The government was learning that, right? So we would get delayed responses, which uh, you know, made us less effective. But again, the important thing of the Long Island Breast Cancer Study Project from the research end was that data was collected. But as an advocate, as the advocacy community, we weren't in, engaged real time and we need to be engaged in real time as we are now. So we went from a great process of you know, getting to know each other into in a short 30 years, uh, knowing that um, we have these trusted relationships and we can collect data and provide um, science-based information in creative ways. The LIBCSP truly was an incredibly influential event in breast cancer research. Yeah, it really brought together scientists, advocates, and the public. At the beginning of this episode, we thought of science as something that was done by scientists and scientists alone. But we now know advocates play an important role in scientific research too. Karen Miller told us a little bit more about how important working together is. So I refer to it as the iron triangle that and all parts of the triangle are equal. It's community concern and it is the science and it is the policy. And the only way to uh, really reduce the risk is to work on all three at the same time. As Karen Miller told us, advocates have to find where their strengths are and focus on what they're good at. Sort of like how today I told everyone about how advocates work with the public and companies. Yeah, and how I talked about people in power and outreach while you knew all of the history. Exactly. Together, we knew a lot more than we might have individually. As Charlotte Brody from Blue Green Alliance mentioned earlier, Working together makes us stronger because of the diversity of opinion and knowledge, not just in spite of it. The more advocates we have, the better. Our strengths cover each other's weaknesses. A Daily Dose is a production of the SCOPE Summer Research Program at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. SCOPE is funded by a grant from the National Institutes of Health, National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. These episodes were written and produced by Jillian Hughes, Mayra Lima, Hennessy's Medina, Elise Pierce, Hannah Power, and Jody Zismore.